Welcome to Behind the Music, the Houston Chamber Choir's weekly podcast. I'm Sinjin Flynn. I'm joined this time by Paul English, who has been a frequent collaborator with the Houston Chamber Choir. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much, Sinjin. Welcome to you. Thank you. How, how would I best describe you? Are you uh, a pianist? Are you a composer? Are you a performer? Or are you all of those things wrapped up into one? I'd have to say all, uh, just because balance in my life is probably my biggest challenge. And I have an interest in all those things. So I have to stay active. I, I find that I'm not really happy doing just one or the other, so all those things. I think you first collaborated with the Chamber Choir in 2009 when you did a performance of uh, Duke Ellington's um, third sacred concert, which is quite a storied uh, presentation, isn't it? Yes, and if truth be known, we added to that story with our production. Uh, the, uh, the, the entire tale wasn't told in the performance, but the rehearsals were an adventure, to say the least, and a brilliant performance by a lot of people on, on many levels. It was really a great thing to be involved with. So. This was a piece, uh, a, a presentation, I don't know if you'd call it a piece um, that uh, he wrote toward the end of his life. And I was quite surprised to find out that it, it debuted in Westminster Abbey in 1973. Yeah. 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 What, give us an overview of, of what this is. Well, uh, there were three sacred concerts uh, and he called them sacred concerts rather than masses or services because it it wasn't a formal service but it what it has been even in my life i've replaced a, a, a regular service mass with this music and this presentation because it's uh, uh it's scriptural as well as musical um his very clear devotion and his especially in his later years but to god and the meaning of music and the relationship of music with god um was profound and his influence um, was, and he was welcomed into the church to do something that had really never been done before. And that is to perform this jazz music inside a church and, uh, as part of a, a, what they call sacred concerts. Um, the part of the brilliance of it is uh, Duke Ellington had, had his musicians with him for so long. They knew each other so well, so much of it was improvisation, even in the actual performances that <clears throat> no real scores of the music exist. Um, they had, they, I mean, they have music that jazz musicians might use from time to time, a scribble here and a scribble there. And some people have published books, but to have an actual score of the orchestra and the choir and this music did not exist. That was part of the challenge to recreate that. I know that you've, you've been in a, a similar situation as well with the, the chamber choir back in, I, 2019, when the choir presented a program uh, titled I Could Write a Book, which featured uh, jazz vocalist Kim Nazarian. So again, we have that, that the classical and the, the improvisational coming together. How yeah. was that? Well, this time we had the advantage of, <clears throat> first of all, Kim Nazarian, who is just fabulous musician. And she's very classically right. trained as well. So she can speak that language. She's also a jazz musician. She speaks that language. When I 
when I use the word language, it's very literal. These are different languages and different, the, the notes might sound the same, but the interpretation and the way we communicate with each other is very different, um, both verbally and on the page. So luckily Kim was comfortable in both worlds. Uh, we also had the advantage that Kim came down and clinicked and coached the choir uh, for about a week before the concert. So they had a chance to really hear from her what she wanted out of the music. Kim was a force of nature and also a really good leader. And she worked with Bob um, about how to best lead the choir and the orchestra um, through this. How did the members of the choir respond to what they were being asked to do in these improvisational settings, which as you say, is, is quite a lot different from the classical experience where everything is notated ad nauseam, yeah. some might say. Yeah, yeah. Well, some of it is notated and, and you're instructed to sing in a jazz idiom. That's a little different than just free improvisation. And um, right. they responded very well to it. it it's, it's, and I don't mean this to be in any way uh, uh, disparaging at all. Also, I use that word again. Uh, but they were giddy, almost uh, happy and like children, they have been given permission to get off the page, you know, and Kim's guidance, they trusted her once they heard her sing and communicate with her, they trusted her in her abilities and her background and her training. Um, and they let go and they were just wonderful in the way they embraced it, learned and were very willing to learn to sing in, in a different style, different genre than they were accustomed to. So it was great. Yeah. I always wonder what effect that sort of liberating experience has on um, the, the singers when they come back to uh, a more classical repertoire. How that uh, you know that 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 jazz experience influences their uh, classical presentation, if you like. Great question and, and great um, great concept, great perspective to to really take a look at that. What does it actually do? I'm fortunate in my life that I grew up with both classical and jazz. I say both, many genres. Um, and I'm comfortable going back and forth. And um, not all musicians are. I think what happens, in, and you, you take a, a, a typical symphony orchestra musician, you just don't get a position in a symphony orchestra without being a very, very accomplished musician. Mm -hmm. the, the, sure. The competition is so high. You've got to be at the top of your game. But like many things that are that focused, it's sometimes exclusive of all other things. So when you prepare to be an orchestra musician, sometimes you exclude all other uh, concepts and all other styles. Um, not, not always the case, but quite often is that's the case. And when you're asked to move over into a different genre, sometimes there's a feeling of uneasiness or, mm. or um, or maybe the thought crosses your mind that you can't do this. You know, you're very, very accomplished in one field, but you can't. And I think those that are brave enough to cross over 
find, first of all, great joy in trying something different. And then, as you mentioned, when they go back to their original genre, there's, I've, I've experienced this with friends. It's no longer the only way to do things. It's just the right mm -hmm. way to do things for that genre, which refreshes you and gives you, well, that, that's great. I can sing in this way because I want to, not because I have to. Um, if, if that makes sense. And I've, like I say, experienced that with singers, with instrumentalists, with, with symphony musicians. And um, I just think it's such a positive cross-pollination that goes on when, when people step out. And of course, today, in the last generation or so, we have many more uh, accomplished classical musicians that are, are stepping over into other genres and performing, uh, both singers, uh, instrumentalists, and um, I think that brings a freshness back to the, like I say, they bring a freshness and a, and a new perspective back home when they, when they go back to what they, where they started. You know. Another crossover, yeah, I, I use that word uh, advisedly, another crossover uh, composer that uh, the chamber choir has uh, tackled and you with them, is uh, Leonard Bernstein, and I think in 2012 they presented a concert music in the key of joy, which was focused on Bernstein's music. What was that like for you? He has a slightly, compared to Ellington, he has a slightly uh, stronger classical background, but he was by no means exclusively classical as, an, as a musician, was he? No, and, and that title for that concert is so apropos. It's, he was so full of joy and the joy of music. If you're ever around him, even for a, a few minutes, you, you just couldn't help but be inflated with that. He was just joyful about music, whether it was strictly classical, whether it was jazz, whether it was musical, um, a brilliant musician and one of my true heroes. If I just knew Leonard Bernstein as an orchestrator, that would be enough. He's just a brilliant orchestrator, that's enough. But he wrote serious, serious um, classic, what we'd call classical music, contemporary concert music. He wrote musicals. He was able to write a melody. And so many contemporary composers, sorry, can't write a simple melody. Uh, it's, it's harder than you think. And he wrote mm -hmm. some of the most beautiful melodies of our time. So a brilliant musician. Now you do a concert with his music. That was very challenging to me. It was challenging because it was no longer me interpreting Bernstein and doing what I could do. I had to play exactly what was on the page, which meant preparation time. Yet at the same time, I had a bass player and drummer that I was unfamiliar with that I had to communicate as my section leader to understand when we changed from classical or orchestral percussion to jazz trap set. Um, mm -hmm. it, it was uh, a challenge, a real challenge. The music is just brilliant. And the music that Bob chose was very diverse. Some of it was, <laughs> for me, it was really hard. And I think it was really hard for some of the choir members too. But uh, what a joy, what a joy. It, um, I'd like a chance to do that concert again to be quite honest. I, I really was really happy to be a part of it, but I would have liked to, I would like to have had another couple of months with the music. Yeah. <laughs> 
You also uh, performed with the choir um, on the program Bach and all that jazz. And of course, my question to you is Bach, jazz, how do those two things go together? Well, first of all, just the, just the topic. All of our bebop uh, harmonies and uh, language comes from Baroque music. I mean, it's, it's straight out of the Baroque book. Uh, and there are reasons for that. First of all, the evolution of music was pre-printed before we got here. That's another topic we could talk about. There, there was a, a pre predestined evolution in many ways. But there's also influence of a few jazz musicians uh, that were uh, classically trained, that were claimed in, in, in Baroque music, that brought their influence to the jazz world. And I, even before this, but, but the, the, uh, the likenesses are, are particularly glaring in, in Baroque music. Uh, we even have uh, not only the harmonies being extended seventh chords with uh, alterations of the ninths and, and, and elevenths, we have this, these thick harmonies developing in the Baroque period. Um, which we hadn't had before. It was the same in bebop. We're using all these same harmonies. Um, even, uh, even performance practices in Baroque music, so often the keyboard player or the Kenya would have sketch parts and they would have what we call figure bass that would tell them what the harmonies are, what the bass note is, and they were expected to make up a part to fit that. Well, mm -hmm. that's exactly what we have in jazz. We get a lead sheet and it tells us to give, a, there's a chord and a bass note, and the melody. Well, we're not supposed to play the melody. We're not. We're supposed to play what's not on the page. So the performance practices and the bass player part of the continuum. You know, performance practices were almost identical. Is that we're improvising our parts while the singers sing the, the the written parts, with with freedom to improvise. By the way, so yeah, the the connection is indelible, and it's way it's the connection is there way before we even think about doing the concerts and music. But I have to shout out to, to Robert Simpson again, uh, the director of the Houston Chamber Choir. He has put me in situations that I had to challenge myself to, to keep up and almost kept up some of the time. But this particular concert was, um, we were doing the motets, uh, which I was not really familiar with, Bach, Bach motets. So I had to first of all go through and study those and learn them. And uh, that was no, no easy challenge. Then I had to say, okay, what are we going to do with these? What do, what, what, what do we do that Bach hasn't already done? But the, the, the format of this concert, this is Bob's idea, um, they would sing one of the motets. Then my jazz trio would respond, not by playing the same motet, but respond in an improvisational way how we were affected by that. Um, huh. I'd never done anything like that. And uh, I'd never heard anybody do it. So I had to figure out what are we going to do? So the first thing I did is I sketched out the motets we were doing. We, we chose three motets of the six and I sketched out parts for bass and drums, piano, and we learned them. We played the motets as they were written as much as possible. And then we broke that down and said, and we really worked on this. So, okay, now that that's under our fingers, so to speak, uh, how are we going to respond to this? Not, not just go back and take a jazz solo over this motet you know, over the same mm -hmm. structure, but let's respond to that. And um, the, the musicians that I chose to play with me were had classical backgrounds as well as jazz. So they were on board. Um, and I'm always unsure that this comes across to the audience, but I was just elated to have this opportunity. 
and uh, and to work with such a great choir and the experience of performing it first of all i'm i'm sitting at the piano directly in front of the choir so i have the best seat in the house and i get to hear the <laughs> choir perform this beautiful music and then i have to play and, and improvise so talk about a moment of inspiration if that's not going to inspire you you're probably you're probably brain dead um just a great concert and a and a great uh, a great concept and a a really uh, just a wonderful uh project to to do and to pull off so very happy about that i'm going to be a little bit unfair uh, you you are <laughs> sitting at your piano uh oh um, <laughs> i wonder if if you could Give us a sense. You talked about the uh, the chord structures uh -huh. between uh, that are from the Baroque that come into uh -huh. into bebop. Can you give us a a brief sense of of how that sounds? Sure. Thank you. It's the same harmony. It's exactly yeah. the same. We use slightly different voicings, but um, it's... when I started discovering that at a young age, I was just, I got more and more drawn into Bach and he became, of course, uh, my biggest influence because I realized that he was not only cross-generational, he was a cross-centurion. You know, the guy was, he was indestructible. <laughs> yeah. And I think one of the things that, uh, is one of the the greatest strengths of the chamber choir is that that bob simpson sees these possibilities in outside of a, a strictly classical environment not only sees them but he's got the courage to step across the line and try something and he's got the faith in the people that he works with or choose to work with that that they'll they'll step up too you know, very much like the Ellington concert uh, is put something together that you're not sure it's, it'll work, but if it does, it'll be brilliant, you know, yeah. and, and uh, there's a lot of courage, uh, especially someone who's got a reputation the way he does of, of being, you know, top of his game. He's, he's now a Grammy winner and been there and done that. But to step across the line and do something that he's not real sure about really says a lot about him and about the choir, too. So nice working with him. What's the, the, the greatest impression that the choir, the, 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 the singers themselves and the sound, etc., has had on you? Mm. The sound. They're just, um, they've managed to keep top performers, just first class singers in that group, who are not only gifted singers, but they're team players, they sing together. They singed it well as an ensemble. And to hear vocal music performed, vocal choral music performed in that way at such a high level is very inspirational. Uh, I grew up in a very small town, in a very small church with a horrendous choir. And I, I swore in my younger years that I would never do choral music because if that's what it sounds like, I don't want any part of it. 
<laughs> well, when I got a little older and went to the big city, found out, oh, some people can really sing. So when I sit in front of that choir, I am, by, in every sense of the term, I am blessed with this beautiful sound, professionals with a passion for music that are, that are not only willing to work on the mechanics, but bring this love for the music and this, uh, over, this overwhelming passion that the music just comes to life when I hear them sing, you know? It's very inspirational to me, so. You talk about growing up in a, a small town. Where did you grow up? Oh, now that I've said that, I probably should. <laughs> I shouldn't admit it now. Okay, so people, you'll forgive me, but you, if you're from that town, you know I'm telling the truth. Um, and there are a lot of good things about that town. I grew up and I'm thankful that I did grow up in a small town because it was really quite a close-knit community. But um, mm -hmm. the way this, the city's name is pronounced is not the way it's supposed to be pronounced at all. It's a Spanish word and the Texans decided that we were gonna pronounce it Refurio. Refurio is a small town on the Gulf Coast between Corpus Christi and Victoria. And the actual word is Refugio, which means refuge, which it was uh, when, the, when, the, when Spain was, um, had the, owned, owned the territory of Texas. <clears throat> it was a refuge. And um, so Refugio somehow became Refurio. There's no R in it and there's no H in it. It's spelled R-E-F-U-G-I-O. So this is one of the mysteries of life that now you can pass on to your, your children and grandchildren. <laughs> was it a was it a musical family that you were you were born into? My father was. My father was a uh, a, a trombonist, <clears throat> both uh, classical and jazz. He studied music and was a very good jazz trombonist. Played with the Artie Shaw Orchestra and uh, had an opportunity ah. to be a career jazz musician, but also had a wife and two kids to support. So he uh, chose the path of education and uh, finished a, a, his bachelor's and master's of music education at North Texas University and uh, was a band director and music teacher while still pursuing uh, performance. So as a kid, I got to hear him play and I got to tag along with him when he went to play a jazz job and I'd sit in the back and listen to all the guys play. and. Uh, when he was working uh, at school at the band hall, I'd go up and on Saturdays and Sundays, and I would just run amok on all the instruments and learn how to play everything on my own. So it was uh, like a, like Willy Wonka in the in the musical instrument factory, you know. So it was it was a good time. My dad was a big influence. When did you first start to uh, learn the piano? <clears throat> because of what my dad did, and my uh, I left out the part that my grandfather was a Methodist minister. So whenever I visited him, there was an organ and a piano at the church. Um, my, we didn't have a piano at home, but my dad was a band director, so I would always follow him and there would be a piano or a keyboard at, uh, at school. So I was uh, banging on the piano. Uh, in my mind, I was writing great operas, but to everyone else, it sounded like banging. Uh, actually, before I could talk, I was banging on the piano, you know, and I'm not exactly sure when I started to figure out that I could do a little better. Uh, but um, when I was six is when we got a piano for the house. And I, mm -hmm. uh, my older sister started taking lessons, but it wasn't time for me. And by the time it was time for me to take lessons, it was too late. <laughs> I, already had, <laughs> I already had my, I already had things in mind that I wanted to do. So I, I really learned by improvising. And you studied music, you were a music major. 
um, in college. Is that correct? Yes, much to my father's chagrin. Really? Oh yeah, he wanted a, he wanted a quote better life for me than he had, and I can't blame him. He, he all his just all his advice was correct. I didn't follow a bit of it. Uh, <laughs> after, but I did major in music first at the University of Miami, Florida, great experience, and later at Rice University, Shepherd School of Music. But uh, my my father and my mother both became very very supportive of my music career and my music, and uh, uh, it was a it was a great, um, I don't know, a great feeling of accomplishment in my life. My father hired me early on. I was 12 years old playing trumpet, hired me to play with his combo. And I would go and read out of the book and play the melody. And then they would play jazz around me. Uh, years later, I got to hire my dad to play in, in my orchestra. Oh, really? On, on a, several occasions. And uh, he, he couldn't have been more proud of me. And I was really proud of him. So it was a, came, kind of came circle you were a composition major is that correct yes i was um you studied with paul cooper at uh, at the shepherd school i did that was uh that was my uh second incarnation as a student i went back to school after university of miami several years went by and i went back to school at uh, rice university and paul cooper became my mentor um, i told him at the time that i didn't want to i i had I was full of jazz. I like jazz. I wanted to do that, but I really wanted to study serious composition with him. And he reluctantly took me as a student. And uh, over the years, we became very, very close. And he was really became a mentor to me. So studying composition from that classical perspective, which is what the Shepherd School does, how did that influence or affect your your own composition, your, your jazz composing, if you like, for want of a better expression. Yes. You know, you, you talked earlier about stepping, uh, about musicians and singers stepping out of their comfortable genre and stepping into another. Um, even though I was very influenced by classical uh, music, I really had not made a real formal study of classical music. So when I did that, I really, I really put all my jazz, I had 900 jazz albums at the time. And I, I put them in storage and I didn't, I put them in boxes and I didn't open them until I finished Ed Rice. I really immersed myself in studying just uh, classical and mostly contemporary concert composers, 20th century composers mostly, because it was different than what I was used to. Um, mm -hmm. Perspective, gave me different perspective, opened my ears. There was some music that I, I'll freely admit that I didn't like, I thought it was noise. Once I listened to it more carefully and I began to appreciate structure, began to appreciate what was going on, um, I developed a real fondness for some of the 20th century composers. Um, so it opened my ears, very much like uh, an artist friend of mine did for me in art, some modern art I didn't really have much love for until he explained to me and showed me and opened the door for me to appreciate it more and, and to see that, well, you know, you're evaluating this on, on certain criteria that doesn't really apply here. You need to have, expand your thinking and have different criteria. Um, so it was expansive and educational and gave me thoughts about different sounds. Uh, made it really, really expanded my hearing and uh, my understanding of tonal uh, relationships and, and structure and forms. Um, if you don't let it overwhelm you, academia can be a good thing. Mm -hmm. 
Who were some of those composers that, uh, the 20th century composers that you, you studied a lot, that you well, came to appreciate? Yeah, you know, all of them. And you could take, you know, Bartok was, was one of the first because he's, his presence is so uh, undeniable in the 20th century. And I really did not like Bartok when I went back to school. I just didn't flat didn't like him. Didn't like him. Um, and I started studying, you know, and I started, well, I, now I get a better idea of what he's doing, but I still don't like it. And then uh, I ran into a couple of things, uh, um, quartets, and I'm thinking, well, wait a second, there's a lot going on here. I need, to, I need to listen to this more carefully. And of course, then I would found, find a better performance of it, which makes a big, big difference. Listening to recordings, sometimes it's not a great performance. And um, so, but of course, there's all, all the others. Uh, Ludoslavsky uh, visited Rice and I met him and I wasn't crazy about his music, but there again, I was evaluating his music on previous criteria. I was looking for melody. I was looking for development. I was looking for a recapitulation. I was like, it doesn't have any of that. It was really into textures, Penderecki, uh, really into textures. And I said, well, that's a different way of looking at things. You don't have to have a melody. You don't have to clap your hands. You don't have to have a beginning and end and a coda. Uh, sometimes it's just about the sounds. It's a soundscape. So I started looking at music in different ways. Um, Stravinsky, of course, but Stravinsky, I, I, I came to grips with Stravinsky early on um, between my 11th and 12th birthday, specifically, specific time. But uh, some of the later 20th century, Schoenberg, for instance, I really started appreciating Schoenberg when I listened to and studied his pre-12-tone music, uh, Reclarta Night, which is just brilliant, you know? I wouldn't have mm -hmm. listened to that before I went back to Rice. But now I'm listening to all this other stuff and I find this little gem and I think, holy smokes, this guy can write. Then I went and listened to his 12-tone music and I see more clearly the influence of tonal music in his 12-tone music, yeah. which I didn't see as much in the other 12-tone uh, composers. I, I would just suffice it to say that my time at Rice was very, very valuable in, in the sense that it expanded my exposure and understanding to other music and other types of compositional style. What about the the jazz <laughs> composers and performers that have had the, the most influence on you? Well, I started in my small town with three jazz records. They were my dad's records that had been worn enough that he would let me have them. They were scratched up. <clears throat> so my, other than hearing my dad play trombone, my exposure to jazz started with three records. Oscar Peterson Trio, Dave Brubeck Quartet, and of all things, the Peter Nero Trio. And that's all mm -hmm. I knew of jazz. That's it. Other than what my dad played, which was mostly combo uh, country club jazz, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, I wore those records out. And of those three records, really Brubeck became my biggest influence. Later on, I would revisit Oscar Peterson with a renewed interest in I, I, uh, Peter Nero never gained traction with me, but I could appreciate his skills and what he did for crossover music, by the way, being a person in the classical world that came and played jazz trio. <clears throat> but I guess today, as I studied and matured as a jazz musician, still lasting influences today, undeniably Bill Evans, John Coltrane I used to have, at one point I had every released John Coltrane recording there was. Um, Miles Davis, of course, uh, Bud Powell, 
Chick Corea, who just passed away this year, uh, tremendous influence. Those jazz musicians, and of course the orchestrators, the, the guys like uh, Gil Evans, uh, Don Sebesky, uh, guys like that really influenced me as a, a, yet another approach to orchestrating, which is a big part of what the studies at Rice were about, orchestrating. How do you take a whole bunch of instruments who don't relate to each other and make one sound out? Um, so there's always more to study, always more to learn, always more to hear, you know? At what point did you know that music was going to be your, your life, your your professional there, life? Well, there was never any question that music was going to be my life. I was drawn to it. I was doing it without being asked to do it. I was never asked to practice. I don't remember a single time mm -hmm. in my life that somebody told me to practice. I wanted to do it. It was my playtime. I put together bands at a young age. I was getting my other musicians to practice. I, you know, it's what I wanted to do. Now, when you say doing it as a profession, that was a more difficult question. And it's a question that I continued to ask. I asked beginning in high school, for sure. And then through most of my adult years, it's a question that I continue to ask. Can I really continue to make a living like this? I have other skills, other, other uh, proclivities. I might be able to transition into a more uh, stable, a more lucrative profession. Uh, that question was always on my mind. Uh, I, mean, I have to admit it. Could I give up music? No, so I didn't, you know, and mm -hmm. so many of those professions, I mean, I just couldn't see myself doing music as a hobby. I couldn't wait to do it on Saturday and Sunday. I, I, it was every day. So um, I, I finally resigned myself to, look, I'm stuck with this for the long haul. <laughs> May as well enjoy the ride. <laughs> but you also, you, you took a leaf out of your father's book and, and you've done a, a great deal of teaching as well, haven't you? Yes. Growing up with my dad and seeing what he went through as a teacher in public school, I swore I would never be a teacher. And I, I, I taught to make a living. I was teaching when I was in high school, I was teaching trumpet lessons to younger kids, and make a little extra money. And I enjoyed it. It was okay. Um, when I went back to Rice, I was teaching part of my uh, fellowship there. And I enjoyed it. And I, and, and teaching college students, I found, wow, these guys are, and, and at Rice especially, these guys were sharp and I enjoyed it. And I really, little by little, I kind of developed an interest in it, which later became a passion. And now I really, really do enjoy teaching. I don't think I could ever be a full-time teacher. I mm -hmm. honestly mm -hmm. don't know how they do it. Um, you're constantly pouring out of yourself and your success depends completely on, the, on how hard your students work or whether they succeed or not. Uh, you yeah. can't do it about it they won't practice you know if they don't if they don't work hard but um i've had enough successes with some of my students that it makes up for those that, that fall by the wayside you know and there's a mm -hmm. i guess maybe it's perspective of age i just get thrilled when i hear a younger younger musician excel and if i'm able to help that along a little there's a satisfaction there that's very very different than the satisfaction of being a performer and i i i admit all apologies to my father that I really have developed a passion for teaching. Love it. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your own compositions. How, how, what have you written and how has your 
how have your compositions developed over time? Because of the way I started playing piano, I was improvising. I, I couldn't read music and I just, whatever I heard, I would, you know, would make something up, you know? So we didn't call it improvising. We didn't call it composition. We just call it making stuff up. And my sister, <laughs> my sisters called it banging on the piano. <laughs> so I know how Beethoven felt you know, sometimes. Um, but um, I, I developed like any self-taught musician. I, you know, I, I wanted to express something and it was more often with music than with words. Occasionally I would write words, but um, I had a piano and I'd express it musically. And because I was learning uh, along the way, I started playing trumpet at age eight and I was studying trumpet, learning to read music well. I, st I already started studying some theory. I would, I, you know, started writing things down when I was maybe six or seven, started writing, writing things down. Um, I think as you, the more time you spend with something, the more, uh, the more you get into, you don't want to stay in one, you, you grow and you want to try new things. Any of the creative arts, you want to try new things. You don't want to stay stagnant. So I was trying new things, coming in contact with other composers, other players, um, studying a little bit, mostly in summer schools and summer, summer uh, colleges. Uh, and then I pursued, pursued it as a student in college. And the more you learn, the more you want to learn. You just develop a thirst for it. So how did I learn little by little through my own resources, through schools, through individuals who come through your life, who show you, here, let me show you the trick. Let me show you this. Or why don't you come by uh, Mel Winters, an older guy in San Antonio when I lived there and I was just a young high school kid. He says, why don't you come by the house? I'll show you a few things. And here's this guy who's at the time really, really old, probably about 10 years younger than I am now. <laughs> and <laughs> he's taking time at the piano to show me this stuff. So that's the way I learned along the way. My, myself, my friends, my teachers, school, listening, concerts, listen all the time. As far as what I've written, I think my, uh, I think my strongest point and my nemesis at the same time is that I've written in a variety of genres and styles for a variety of instruments and voices. Uh, I like new challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, I would have been wiser to stick with one genre and perfect it rather than trying something that I'd never tried before next time. Um, you know, but I enjoy the challenge. So I've written for orchestra, I've written for chamber music, I've written for jazz groups, I've written for voice. Um, I've written for just about every instrument in the orchestra. Uh, I didn't really develop a love for choral music until late in life, like uh, I was maybe in my 30s or 40s, but hearing groups like uh, the Houston Chamber Choir and hearing what choral music should sound like and then studying the music really got me very, very interested in choral music, which is most of what I write now is, is either choral music or choral music related. Um, but the next project, you know, I was also into electronic synthesizer and electronic composition, uh, film composition. Um, I was doing radio and TV jingles for a while, which means you have to write a, a simple melody that someone can remember and, and then get mm. it done in a minute, you know? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I enjoy the different genres. And um, um, my studio work plays a big part in that because I, I end up playing as a sideman or a producer 
in the studio, I end up playing with different genres, most of the time popular genres, uh, country, western, uh, funk, uh, R&B, um, you know, just um, even rock and roll, even rap. Um, all that stuff influences what I write as a composer. And then the, the, uh, the other influence is uh, who am I writing for? It might be a commission. If I'm writing for, for somebody or for some organization, there will be parameters. And there'll be mm -hmm. you know, uh, sometimes a focus on a, a particular genre, which I take as a challenge. You know, you want to study that genre, like the, like the Bach Motets, man. That was a great, what a great project, you know? I get to study Bach more, you know? <laughs> Give us a few bars of, uh, of some Paul English. Oh, goodness. Well, let me give you two examples. And these are both things I wrote a long time ago. One that I wrote when I was 19, and this is just part of it. I feel like we've only just sort of scratched the surface of oh, yeah. uh, your life in music, but I really appreciate you talking to us and uh, playing for us. And uh, we look forward to uh, the possibility of collaborations with the Houston Chamber Choir in the future, because I know that, uh, that you would love that and that they would love that as well. I would love that. And I, and I want to say one other thing, but Sinjin Flynn, you are one of the, if not the very best, host and interviewer I've ever had the contact, ever had contact with or had the pleasure of working with. I don't know if people watching this know what it takes to be a, a host and a commentator, but you have really made me feel at home. And thank you very much. I don't talk as much usually. I don't know how you got it out of me, but thank you. <laughs> well, I appreciate your kind words and uh, the check is in the mail. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Great. Paul English, thank you so very much. Thank you, Sinjin. See you again. And thank you to everybody who supports the Houston Chamber Choir as a sponsor, as a patron, as an audience member. We appreciate all that you do to make the Houston Chamber Choir possible. I'm Sinjin Flynn. This is Behind the Music. Join me again next time. The Houston Chamber Choir's With One Accord is your one-stop shop for choral joy. If you enjoyed this podcast, help us to continue our mission to grow the esteem and appreciation of choral music by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to our content. As a 501c3 nonprofit, support from listeners like you allows us to continue making new and exciting programming. For more information about us and how you can support our work, please visit HoustonChamberChoir.org give.